0: From Relay FM, this is Download, recorded Thursday, July the 12th, 2018. This is episode 62, Get My Gecko Out of Hiding. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I'm Jason Snell, your host. I'm joined by two wonderful guests as usual. Uh, a frequent visitor here, analyst at Creative Strategies, Carolina Milanesi. Hello, welcome back.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
0: It, it was good to, uh, I read a piece uh, that you wrote this week about a s- subject I wanted to talk about, and I thought, okay, here we go. I'm going to ask you to be on to <laughs> talk about it. I also here, it. though. Here's the surprise <laughs> twist. Uh, Principal analyst and head of primary research at Creative Strategies. Co-workers, yes, indeed. They know each other pretty well. I think they do a podcast together. It's Ben Beharin hello howdy <laughs> It's, it's a, that's but uh, that, i like the howdy because you you are of course silicon valley's most prominent rancher that's right for the time being <laughs> that's what that's what we know uh stephen hackett is also here hi stephen hey i'm i'm not a rancher i'm not i'm not no
2: i live in the right part of the country though but
0: no hat no cows you're you're nothing. in yeah you're in you're a city folk down there. That's right. You're yeah. you're you're in the in the in the we'll big city. That. So um and and it's good to good to be back on Download of course. I uh there was an episode that Steven hosted and then we skipped a week because we were both in London um for along with most of the other podcasters we know uh for a wedding, but we're back now. And so now we're back. It's we we skipped one week. That's it. We're back. We're weekly again. You
1: didn't do a podcast from the wedding?
0: You know, yes. I, I am surprised that somebody didn't break out some microphones at the reception because <laughs> there were plenty of podcasters there, but it didn't happen. I think everybody was pretty nice to they they kept those uh, kept those worlds separate a little bit, keep the the personal a little bit away from the professional. and I think that was okay. I think that was okay. All right, let's get down to it. Uh, Stephen and I picked some stories that we think were interesting that we're going to talk about because that's what we do on this podcast. And topic number one, the one that I wanted to talk about, the one that made me uh, email Carolina uh, earlier this week is Microsoft expanded the Surface line of products. This week introduced the Surface Go. This is a $399 10-inch tablet running windows it's got four gigs of ram it's got 64 gigs of uh emmc storage which stephen put in the document as slow <laughs> okay <laughs> uh all powered by a yeah, Pentium gold processor so not not like super high end or anything but it's 300 uh, 399 dollars uh you can attach a keyboard to it because it's a surface it's running windows um you add all the stuff upgrade the storage in the ram you can get it to be a 600 product instead of a 400 product it's running windows 10 for sure um um, a lot of questions about this product. It is kind of. It seems like a successor to the to the basic uh, Surface. Um, uh, my questions include like is this is this like going up against an iPad? Is it going up against Chromebooks? Is it going up against laptops? Uh, Carolina, let's start with you since you wrote a piece on uh, Pinions about this this week. Uh, what what are your thoughts about the Surface Go? Like where what is Microsoft doing with this product? Where is it going to fit?
1: Yeah. I, I... You know, I, there's a lot of commentary out there that uh, took the visas doubling down on iPad kind of line. And it's hard not to say something that is coming to market that looks like a tablet, speaks like a tablet, walks like a tablet, not to go against the iPad because the iPad is being the only successful tablet out there in the market uh, from a from a market share perspective. Although, you know, Everybody's been quite happy lately to just say that the sales are coming down, and we've not seen the growth that we were expecting. It is still the most successful tablet, but I think that, it, and I don't don't want to speak for Microsoft, but if I look at their portfolio. And I looked at um, how the surface tree, especially after uh, the price discount, um, that there there was uh, at one point in time around 2016, and its and success within the enterprise, I think that the the go is looking at expanding the footprint of surface in the enterprise first. that I think is what they're looking at uh, as a kind of a, a a first step and then of course, if they can get market share from everybody else, they'll be happy. But I think when you're starting to compare any tablet in the Windows ecosystem to the iPad. You do the iPad a disservice if you're not acknowledging how much the ecosystem and so the apps that you have available on the iPad are part of the experience that as a user you're buying into. You're not just buying into the hardware, right? It's everything that you have available that is not quite available on a Windows um Uh, kind of world and so you can't quite have the same experience of course if what you are interested in is mobility and so you're looking at form factor and you're looking at uh, small and light and all that kind of stuff uh, then yes you're comparing like for like but it's hard to do that without taking into account apps um, but that's what I think the first part of this Windows uh, Surface Go device is going to be. And there's plenty, I said in my piece, there's plenty of market share to be had within the Windows ecosystem where, you know, you don't have to talk about the apps and the ecosystem where, um, you know, everybody else has the, the same access. But I still see uh, PC manufacturers really not, understanding what uh, good design is and and cutting corners on uh, the quality of a screen or, um, you know, the thickness of a bezel around the screen, the pen um, that not just doesn't ink properly, but it's It's a bad experience out of the box, so it sounds silly, but it adds up to the overall experience of the product and the keyboards as well. I think the Surface keyboard is one of the best keyboards that I've I've ever used. Um, I, by a long stretch, prefer that over the iPad one. So there's a lot there.
0: Mm -hmm. Ben, what do you think about
3: what Microsoft's doing with this Surface Go? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, obviously, Carolina and I'll agree on, on, on all of, most of these points. I, I think the perspective that I bring is, you know, firstly, there really is not an iPad competitor in the Windows ecosystem. And I think that that's, you know, not only clear from data points that we see, but also just in terms of behavioral patterns that we see on what people do in the Windows ecosystem with touch devices. And then obviously what, what, what people do with, uh, with iPads. So, you know, I, I, I will never say, and you'll never hear me say that someone in the Windows ecosystem is going after iPad. And, and, believe, and, and I also think that the Windows ecosystem feels the same way. If, if you recall, this was probably Microsoft's um, attempt to begin with, and they pivoted, not even calling Surface a tablet anymore. I think they're recognizing that that product and many of the products that are more, you know, I hate this term, the two-in-one category, but products that fall into that, um, that, that category with a detachable screen that can be a tablet or a laptop are, are being purchased by people who want really a laptop. Laptop first and a tablet mode for 10, maybe 20% of the things that, that they'll do. Um, whereas iPads really, I think more, more being used in that kind of, you know, holding, um, a more tablet like form factor and then laptop things maybe less right 10 20% of the time. So so the the Windows ecosystem I think is doing a good job catering to people who want a laptop uh notebook form factor that brings touch and wants tablet type stuff for a, a small amount of tasks and that's that's really the behavioral patterns and 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 the usage patterns that we're seeing within the Windows ecosystem. And obviously iPad has you know, a vast array of of apps um, that, that benefited in terms of its, its more touch, uh, specific types of workflows and, and, and things like that. So, um, like I said, I, I don't think that, that, that the windows ecosystem has or ever will have an iPad competitor. it's probably something that I'm sure Apple's happy that I say, but, uh, I think that's the, the, the right way to look at it. And I think the way that, that iPad evolves is honestly still, I think, a bigger question because I do think Microsoft's doing a good job of satisfying the needs of someone who really does want that those those computing type workflows that they've built up over a long period of time, um, and, and have the comfort and familiarity of of using a keyboard, using a mouse, or sorry, using a mouse mostly because obviously they both have, have keyboards, but really doing having a keyboard that that lends itself to long form touch typing um, for long periods of time, and they've done a better job, I think, satisfying the needs of those who really want the laptop form factor first, which is still. Vast majority of of consumers out there who are using um, both devices, uh, and I think the, the 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 iPad is doing a good job at still more of those consumption based things. So I think there's there's a little bit of a, a schism. I've I've wrote about this uh, for subscribers of our of our site the past couple of weeks, where iPad needs to go or can go if if it is to t- to take on more what we'll just call notebook type tasks. Um, but I think Microsoft's doing a better job of, of, of appealing to people who think that they still need a computer but want some of the benefits of touch um, but still want to be able to do all of the things that they're comfortable with on a, on a notebook form factor.
0: Yeah, not to not to turn everything to Apple here, but I think Microsoft, when Microsoft is building its own hardware in the Surface line, it is a very Apple-like strategy. And, and, and so the, dif- the differences are interesting. And I, I keep hearing people talk about Apple's strategy as buy both, which is essentially saying they don't have one product that does all of this stuff. They have two products that are different. And you, if you want a laptop and you want a tablet, you essentially need to buy both. Now, as somebody who travels only with an iPad and not a laptop, I do have a, a Mac laptop, but it's kind of old, and I I don't ever travel with it in, in, if I can avoid it. Um, I obviously have prioritized the tablet experience because I don't want to. I, I won't travel without a tablet, but I can get away with traveling without a laptop. What I find interesting about something like the Surface Go is as As you both have said, it you know it is a laptop more than it's a tablet, but it does allow you to take one device and have it be an okay kind of touch tablet experience and also then attach that keyboard and pointing device and get your computer back when you need it and uh, you know this is not to go off too far on a tangent about apple, but I- I'm curious what you both think about. Microsoft strategy, where you, and the strategy in the PC market in general, where you have these kind of convertible devices, versus Apple sort of saying, "Look, we have a tablet and we have a laptop, and we don't have a, a combo." Um, is that uh, is that a good? Is that something Apple is strategically, you know, doing, or is it more that their platforms just aren't at the point where they can make something like that?
1: Well, I started thinking if the the path from an Apple perspective is more about kind of waiting until people are ready. And so you have now both uh, and there are the two separate platforms. And in in a way, iOS represents the future of computing. Um, And, you know, the Mac is more your legacy, if you like. Um, And I think for me, you see, there are people that like you have embraced, the iPad. I travel as well with with an iPad Pro. That's my, if you like, computer. But over the past six months or so, I started using a couple of apps that consider the iPad a mobile version. And therefore, they don't have, right? (laughs) They don't support the browser in that mobile version. And so uh, I started carrying a Surface with me as my PC. Um, And I didn't want to do that. And, and now the, the, um, Surface Go might get me, uh, to a smaller fo- footprint, but everything I do is still in, in an Apple ecosystem when it comes to personal. Uh, my books are there, you know, s- stuff like that. Um, my point though is that if people are getting more accustomed not to see iOS as a mobile platform and legacy, and you have uh, a new set of users that have no legacy. You know their legacy is iOS. Uh, that the the Mac will go away uh, f- for a lot of people, and and I'm not t- saying from a from a, a device perspective, but you know more and more people will migrate for uh, for Windows. That is not an issue right they they have tried with windows a first which w- did not succeed and then uh, with Windows 10 to go into one size fits all, one OS fits all. Um, and I still feel that this is serving them well today, where legacy, especially in the enterprise, is so much more important than the future of computing. But I do wonder if their continue lack of focus, in my view, on the ecosystem side when it comes to apps will make them struggle in the future. So if I look five years ahead, I see more people transitioning to a modern uh, workflow where iOS fits very well and the iPad will fit very well, where legacy is going to be less important and I need to see Microsoft making more progress on that side when it comes to apps to make it successful. And I think that if you look at Windows 10 S, that's a very clear example of their, you know, Microsoft trying to push people into a more modern way of working, if you like, a, a, a kind of an app first world. But the ecosystem is not there. And and, uh, and so people are then, because they offer the safety net of up, you know upgrading to um, Windows Pro, that you do it. And so there, there's that kind of chicken and egg of, okay, we want you there, but then we give you the option of not going there just yet. And so nothing is happening.
3: Yeah, I, I, I come at this from, I think there's two different ways to look at it. Uh, there's a short-term view, and then there's a long-term view. Um, you know, I think the short term view is, is, is there's a, there's a reality that the vast majority of Apple's customers are iPhone owners and Windows users. And so I look at that and I say, well, what, what do, what are they doing to bring those Windows ecosystem users into their ecosystem? Because, you know, every data point that we've seen suggests that the more, you know, the more products that uh, a consumer has of Apple's, the higher the services revenue is for them. So the higher value they have in software in terms of economics, and two, the, the more sticky and more loyal those customers are. So it's it's within Apple's best interest to get as many customers within their within their ecosystem as as possible. And so the rub is the vast majority of their user base is an iPhone and a Windows device. And I look at that and say, okay, well, what what can they do? and and i think there's there's two ways it's either it's either iPad, which is me for me, the preferred direction that they take. But I think there's a lot of challenges, like we like we've talked about. There's legacy workflows. There's 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 comfort that goes into still the PC because vast majority of people are familiar with that. Um, you know, interestingly, even in one to one iPad schools that we've seen um, across the country, there those students that start in in K through twelve or K through uh, um, five so elementary and then up into junior high still genuinely will get a laptop when they're in high school or in college so we're not seeing even within that demographic that's very very rich and predominant ios whether that's with their phone or their phone and and, and a tablet is still getting either a pc or a mac when they get into the 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 higher education and then uh, obviously the the workplace so i, I think You take that observation for what it is that that's that's a dynamic that happens um i i guess i I would prefer that ipad be the thing that uh, apple could transition into and start to absorb some of that base but i think the reality is consumers are not going in that direction as much as apple uh apple would would prefer um so so then the other option is what i hope they do and if they do i think this i tweeted this yesterday complicates a little bit the story is release a a lower cost more affordable entry-level Level max. So that's either update the air with retina, come in at seven ninety nine ish or or somewhere around there um would sell like hotcakes that would instantly boost apple's market share in the overall pc segment and honestly it would do some real damage to the windows ecosystem that's seeing rising asps around that same price from every major oem Um, so but then again their app that's apple saying they're catering to legacy workflows pc first sorry uh, desktop note notebook first workflows versus really push this transition toward what Apple believes and I and I firmly believe having watched a number of developer sessions that they 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 are convinced that uh, that touch and touch based interface for both cre- creativity and productivity is the most natural human interface that there is um, but they're not transitioning that into I think enough with with what can happen in the base so we take sort of that short-term view which is people are still stuck on legacy workflows vast majority of them are comfortable with that and we don't see them switching wholesale um, to ipad and then and then to carolina's point which is okay well what happens over the longer arc of time is perhaps something like everything we're talking about with ipads and even Macs—a a a 10-year a phase when we shift to something like augmented reality where, you know, glasses plus phone or glasses plus something, maybe even there's a big screen piece in that, um, transitions into those new types of workflows and then, you know, everything else is sort of ob- obsolete. So, I, I think there's there's challenges with, with Apple's sort of short-term strategy. I think there's optimism with the long arc because I do think that ios is is the underlying architecture that ar and voice and ai and all these interesting things will be built on which carry carries them toward this next this next platform uh whatever comes after this but i think there's this distinct short-term opportunity that i'm just i'm just not sure how they're going to solve that because you know again my underlying point is it behooves apple to get as many people many iphone owners onto either an ipad or a mac and that's i think short-term strategy priority number one and that's what we'll see. we'll have to see how they how they attack that
0: yeah, and some of the things that they've done um and are in the process of doing that we saw at their developer conference suggest that maybe in addition to trying to get people to uh, jump on board the iPad, they are now making moves to make the Mac kind of like grow in the opposite direction with the idea that you're going to be able to take iOS apps and create uh, create Mac versions of them. And then if at some point they have a Mac that is is running software that also c- is capable of understanding touch and was designed for touch as well, and then you, know, you could do a touchscreen, you could move that platform to ARM because there's been talk about that, and you could end up building essentially something kind of like the surface that can behave like an iPad in some contexts and like a Mac in others. Um, so, you know, they, they, they may be able to approach this from a few directions in the meantime to see if they can drag the user base to where they want it to go. But we'll see. There's there's a lot. It's, you know, for people who. Uh, it, it's very easy to poo poo the PC market as being kind of flat and boring. But the fact is, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening uh, with sort of where it goes in a mobile world. Um, much more to talk about there um, on future episodes of Download, perhaps. But now I want to move on and talk about some other topics. Before I do that, let me tell you about a sponsor. This episode of Download is brought to you in part by Squarespace. You can make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for whatever your next idea is. Get a unique domain. Get award-winning templates. You don't have to be a designer yourself. There's a whole lot more. No matter what you want to make, an online store, a portfolio for your artwork, a blog. Uh, It's an all-in-one platform. You can do any of those things on Squarespace. There's nothing to install. You don't have to patch a server on the internet somewhere. Squarespace takes care of all of that. Uh, if there's a software vulnerability that affects servers, don't worry about it. Squarespace is on it. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. It, They've got it all covered. And of course, there's 24-7 award-winning customer support. If you need any help building your site, they can let you quickly and easily grab a domain name. So you'll have your own domain with your own site parked there, uh, ready to welcome in whoever you want to read your blog or look at your art or to buy your products. Um, and of course, those award-winning templates I mentioned. Beautifully designed. You can show off your great ideas without being a web designer. They have designers and have built beautiful templates. Plans start at just $12 a month. But you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash download FM. And when you decide to sign up, use this offer code download FM and you'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash download FM and the code download FM to get 10% off your first purchase. You know, the wedding that uh, that Stephen and I went to last week, all of the details on it, where to go, what the couple was asking for, for presents, all of that. It was Squarespace site. It's true. And it was pretty good. It was beautiful, actually. And uh, I'm sure it was easy for them to set up because the bride and groom have a lot on their minds, right? And thank you to Squarespace for supporting this show. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Let's move on to another topic. So there's a lot of drama going on in the streaming media world. Um, you know, Disney buying Fox. That still hasn't happened, although, as mentioned in our previous episode, there's sort of like there was Justice uh, Department approval, there's all this kind of like U.S. government saying it's okay, which makes it better for Disney, but Comcast still kind of wants it, but they may be jousting over Sky TV in Britain. There's a lot going on there. But I want to talk about one of the ramifications of the other big deal that has been going on this summer, which is AT&T buying Time Warner essentially now Warner Media and that includes HBO. Now, um, HBO is part of the AT&T family of companies, uh, which is a really not exciting phrase. It's a very corporate phrase. Yay, the AT&T family. They're my favorite family. According to the New York Times, John Stanky, a longtime AT&T executive who now oversees HBO in his new role as chief executive of Warner Media, had a meeting with the uh, with the head of HBO and 150 or so HBO employees, and said, changes are coming. In the future, HBO will substantially increase its subscriber base, and the number of hours that viewers spend watching its shows, he said, we need hours a day, not hours a week, not hours a month, hours a day. You're competing with devices that sit in people's hands and capture their attention every 15 minutes. I want more hours of engagement you get more data and information about a customer that allows you to do things like monetize through alternate models of advertising as well as subscriptions. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack here. Basically what he seems to be saying is one, HBO needs to be Netflix more than it is now. And two, that AT&T wants engagement for reasons that are very interesting given that HBO is currently a subscription based brand uh, like advertising. So Uh, I think this is a really interesting story where where we've been talking about Netflix kind of wanting to be HBO in terms of becoming its own uh, producer of its own content, that that was a direction it was going. And it's kind of gotten there. In fact, as we record this, the Emmy nominations came out. And for the first time in 17 years, HBO is not the most nominated network. Guess who? Netflix is the most nominated network. So Netflix is HBO now. So... AT&T executive sort of saying now HBO maybe you should be more like Netflix. What do you two think about this because you know there there's an argument to be made that HBO is what it is because they are careful and they have a small list of originals and they curate it and they go for high quality. At the same time, although I always get a little bit mm, nervous when a corporate executive who just bought a company rolls in and says I'm going to change everything that you're doing, uh, I get The idea that AT&T might want something like Netflix. And if you look in its portfolio, HBO does kind of seem to be the place that you could grow a service like Netflix. So, uh, Ben, what did you think about this, about what what AT&T might want to do with HBO? Yeah, I mean
3: I I think there's there's a lot of different ways that that you can look at this. I mean, I think, you know, keeping in mind that AT&T and DirecTV are a thing, um, which I think is an important understanding they're the of family. a the family of companies. <laughs> exactly. But but I think again they're they're bringing they're they're bringing some verticalization and and I think there's mm-hmm. there's an, an an interesting perspective here to just sort of step back and say we are seeing a consolidation happen in, in many different parts of our industry. We're moving from lots of companies to just a few companies, and and that broadly is a important trend to, to understand. And so within here, media and entertainment, we're we're seeing the same thing, and I think we'll actually see quite a bit more consolidation um, over the uh, over the years to come. But but knowing that they're also not just a Wireless services provider, but also a uh, a media and entertainment package provider with cable. I think is important to understand how they're trying to verticalize this strategy. The other is, you know, one of the things that obviously Time Warner understands is that content production is extremely expensive, and and you know how how long could they have continued to compete while they're being outspent in. in content production by Amazon, Netflix, and even Apple, who's who's spending more in general and in in, uh, in in original content than, than many of the original networks, um, I think understanding how they're trying to, to verticalize for both differentiation, but also I think they all realize that the bundles not going away. That's something I, I believe as well. That you're just going to it's who you pay is going to change. Doesn't you're still going to pay for a bundled set of content, um, and so thinking about how they'll verticalize is is really I think. The, the big picture view of, of what they're trying to do but you're right about HBO and I think obviously AT&T believes that over the top is kind of coming certainly they want to bundle as much original content as well as as as, as, uh, as, as legacy content in terms of, of back catalog as possible because again that's they're trying to make their pipes more valuable that's at the end of the day what, what their goal is here yep. um, and I think the the rub will always be right what do you do with HBO because I've seen lots of takes that like well They're going to kill HBO, not because they try, but because it would be mismanaged and they'll try to make it something it's not. Your point about kind of how HBO works, which I think is much more like how Pixar works is, is, is a really, is an important perspective because I do think that's true. Um, but I think they realize they're up against tech companies with a lot of money who are outspending them on original content. Granted, they may not they're probably not making much money, if any, or they might those might be completely lost leaders from um from Netflix and, and Amazon. But the reality is that they are getting a lot of attention. It's driving subscriptions. Netflix wants to be like the one-stop shop for all of your content. Um, you know, they want to be premium as well as basically a, a network. That's kind of how they're how they're trending. So I, I think there's a recognition that that's a legitimate challenge from these big tech companies with a lot of money, who can get some of the a lot of these programs, and HBO is a, a good piece of this. But I think again, right, this is all. More consolidation will come. This is a part of them making pipes more valuable. And and I think how they then sort of balance this over-the-top bundle, who else they either aggregate, buy, merge with, etc., is, is the goal is to make as much of that as enticing as possible. And the reality is in every single uh, use case from Netflix to Amazon – Maybe even, right, Apple over time, it, it's been clear that original content is what actually drives subscriptions. So that's really where I think AT&T is trying to find that. They, right, they don't really have original content. They've had licensed content. What they give with DirecTV is still just an aggregator. So HBO and other things that might come from that are, are part of their original content strategy, which, like I said, is a, a very, very clear, um, data point that, that drives new subscriptions. So I think that, big sort of verticalization value in the pipes and trying to bring something unique into the fold is, is kind of the the big take that they're that they're going after here
0: caroline what do you think does should at&t be looking at hbo and saying you know it's great that you're you're throwing off billions in profit but we need you to think bigger
1: well as a Consumer, not as an analyst, right? Who absolutely adores some of the shows that are on HBO. I do get nervous, like you do, yeah. um, hearing something like this because I, clearly you're looking at why, as a consumer, I buy into certain things, right? And if you're looking at it from an AT and T perspective, things are now different, and I get that, but. As a consumer, I didn't go and subscribe to Netflix. That was the second thing I did when I moved to the US. The first was subscribe to Amazon Prime, um, because Netflix was doing original content. I subscribed because I wanted everything that they had, right? And then the original content that they they provide is the cherry on the top, if you like. Um, for HBO, it's different. I subscribe to HBO because I like. What they they're they're showing, and uh, it is about the content that that they specifically produce that I'm particularly interested in. Um, but for AT and T, if their goal is going to become, you know, if you like changing from, you know, an Apple model where you pay for what you get and you're not as a consumer, the product to a Google model, right, where I become the product, then things are going to be very different. And as a consumer, I might not necessarily like that. Um, And, you know, putting advertising first, which means the hours that I spend, but not necessarily the quality of the engagement that you get, will change what they expect from HBO. And that might not be in the consumer's best interest.
0: That is one of the things that gave me pause, right? Like, I I, I get the idea that HBO has been built for profit and at and wants it to be scale and that they're willing to maybe, you know, be less profitable, spend a lot of money, get a bunch of original content, um, use it as the original content branch of what they're doing in addition to, you know, AT&T having DirecTV Now, which is an over-the-top service. You know, it's an interesting little connection there. I, 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 I get it. Um, it's the, that line about um, alternate models of advertising and stuff that gave me pause. It's like, okay, what is what is that game? Because Netflix's game is a subscription game, too. But at and right. obviously, is thinking, what, and again, are they thinking clearly about this? Or is this just sort of a corporate uh, policy, a corporate directive that part of what at and does is aggregate consumer information so that they can advertise? And maybe it's not in the premium content space that they're doing that, but they can use that information to inform some other partner. Part of their business, I don't know. It, it is a good question, like because I do enjoy the fact that for a premium content service, I just give them money. Their business model is that I keep giving them money, and that's a, I, I like that. It's very simple. Um, I wanted to mention one other angle here too, which is speaking of uh, this this really kind of land rush where uh, there, nobody wants to be left out of this because this is the future of media power happening right now. We're gonna we're gonna uh, completely upset what. what what currently is there, and it's going to be a completely different set of players when we're done, probably, although some players might remain. You see this with Disney basically turning into a streaming business as well. Overseas, so we, if we go to Europe, media uh, broadcasters in Britain, Germany, and France are all setting up these ambitious joint national video platforms to compete against Netflix and Amazon with a mix of live and streaming content from networks in their respective countries. Now, it may be too little too late. U.S.-based streaming giant have a huge market share in Europe, and a lot of smaller streaming services have come and gone. Um, but I do think that is really interesting that broadcasters in Europe are saying, "Well, wait a second. Like, it's great that Netflix and Amazon <laughs> are, are doing so well, but they are that's um, you know American programming with some local programming." Um, so I think that's an interesting angle too, where where these broadcasters in Europe are saying, "Maybe we just need to make our own streaming service because ultimately, if you don't have one." It's not going to work.
1: You know, Europe, having lived in the UK, uh, coming from Italy, it, it was kind of weird because um, in Italy, we do have state TV the same as BBC in Italy. is Rai, and you have BBC in the UK. Uh, and, uh, of course, you also have uh, private networks. Um, but I never felt that... Information and content was as managed as it was in the UK. Um, when BBC iPlayer started, it, it could have been Netflix, but it wasn't <laughs> um, because right. of how restricted you were as a as a user on you know the content that you were getting access to, and so um, I don't know if that initial phase was very British in terms of, you know, not really going uh, all for it and really thinking ahead, that could have stopped Netflix in the UK or at least limited um, If they truly believed that streaming was the way that the market was going, but they didn't, uh, it was that kind of half, you know, half in, half out, we'll try it, see what happens. And in the meantime, Netflix came and they just went all in um, and consumer bought into it. So I don't know if some of it is cultural. Um, and you now have, because so many of the big shows now are produced here, um, even if ironically, you know, Game of Thrones is, is uh, done in the UK from, from a, a filming perspective. Um. You know, there's that idea of, okay, content, this is where the content is, is still about Hollywood, and we still want that. And consumer think the same as for the internet in a way, or, you know, that, that this is where the U.S. is where everything happens. And so if you're getting a service that is an American service, you'll get better content. Um, I also don't think that, from from a, from a uh, money perspective there is the same splurge in europe that there is here um it, it, you know that there are not this Massive, big production. And ironically, some of them um, are very successful. I think Killing Eve on, on BBC is, is one of the latest. And I think that um, the actress um, Ho is her uh, last name. I uh, can't remember her first name, but she's one of the Emmy nominees for, for Best um uh, main actress, so you know it I think is a different world there um is quality um you know but actually the least money you spend uh, the more you recognize for the quality of the work that you're doing um and and generally you know more traditional i think viewing um pattern if you like.
3: Yeah, I, I think the the perspective globally that, you know, US based network content is 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 so desired and so powerful over there um is is an important one because, you know, outside of of a couple of specific networks doing original content, you know, there there is a lot of syndication still that happens um globally. And I think, you know, just looking at how they're 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 trying to create more of these over the top services but lots of them again are are syndicated and just again how how big of a portion US based network content is globally i think is really interesting cuz even when you look at most of of the uh of of the networks and and, and i've talked to a couple different network executives about kind of how they think about investment i mean it's always global is kind of their goal like that's when they really start making money on content is when it is when it goes global and and it's interesting because if you think about it, like this is one of the things that intrigues me about, you know, what Apple can do with original content because Apple is more global than um than really any of 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 their competitors in netflix and amazon and if they can come up with some original contents that are global hits i mean that would be financially profitable very very quickly for them um and and a really big driver for their service so it was sort of this this perspective and talking with some folks in hollywood about how they view global successes as really kind of the metric and roi where where they really start to, to to feel like they've made significant money on um on a program that that was intriguing to me from Apple's perspective, and obviously, I think you know Apple's probably also in a position to do some interesting things with some of the global uh, the global carriers as well. That they might not be able to do with some of the the U.S. based networks in terms of a broader streaming service and rights. So it'll be interesting to see how they how they tackle um, tackle that. And I think a lot of the more international carriers might might start to even cozy up to them as well mm-hmm. in, in some areas where um, you know we've just kind of got this stubborn wall of uh, of U.S to uh, MSOs and, and cable operators.
0: Yeah, I wonder sometimes about that, like the BBC just making a deal with someone right one of the giants and saying uh, we, we've we you know right now they're probably making more money by putting their content on BBC America and PBS and, and and places like that but I could totally see to use the BBC or as an example we could also say like ITV or something like that that uh, some uh, company that airs and also produces shows to say we've just struck a global partnership with Netflix and so everywhere outside of the UK our shows will go on Netflix and that that moment may come that would be very interesting to, to definitely see how all of these different companies uh, deal with this new world well we'll keep watching it i love another interesting thing one of the fascinating things about writing and talking about technology and uh, everything that the entire technology industry has completely upset the apple cart of the entertainment industry just because streaming video is a thing now and it's totally changed everything it's fascinating to watch um, on this day when netflix got more emmy nominations than hbo Um, Let's take a break. We've got a couple more things to talk about. But first, I want to tell you about one more sponsor. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at Pingdom. The reason Pingdom is awesome is because they help keep our sites and your sites and the sites you love online and functioning pingdom monitors your site so you don't have to you don't have to sit there 24 hours a day hitting reload because that's not a job for a person it's a job for a robot and they will give you real-time feedback you'll know exactly what's going on at all times because stuff does break on the internet all the time computers they're no good they they (laughs) they have bugs they uh they they're power fluctuations there's all sorts of reasons every month pingdom detects 13 million outages. That's right. 400,000 examples of a computer not doing what it's supposed to be doing every single day. So whether you've got a small website or a complex infrastructure, it's super important to monitor availability and performance. You don't want your site to be down and know nothing about it until you get that email or that tweet that says, is, this, uh, is it just me or is your site down? And you're like, oh, it's not just you and we've lost sales and no, no. Uh, that's why you need Pingdom. It's easy to get started. You put in the URL of your site. They take care of the rest from there. Go to Pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now and you'll get a 14-day free trial, no credit card required, 14 days of coverage, and you'll see when your site goes down and you'll know that's why you need to pay attention and sign up for Pingdom. When you do sign up, use this code, DOWNLOAD that's right, the name of this podcast. At checkout, you'll get 30% off your first invoice. Thank you to Pingdom for supporting this show and Relay FM. Now, before we move on to our third topic, I want to talk about the story you might have missed, something that may have flown in your radar, but it's least worth mentioning. Magic Leap is providing details about the launch of its mixed reality headset. Much hyped, so much investment, so much hype. The wearable will use NVIDIA's Tegra X2 system on a chip, but the company neglected to share details on battery life. No pricing was made available either, nor was an exact launch date beyond this year. There are a lot of unanswered questions. There was a story that I saw that people who saw the demo of the Magic Leap product were not really that impressed. I think the, we Stephen and I talk about this a lot when we talk about Elon Musk, that you know what? The problem with setting expectations really high is that then you don't meet them. <laughs> and that <laughs> seems to be maybe what is going on there. But you may have missed about Magic Leap because it continues to be barely a story until they finally have a product to ship. Anyway, moving on to our third and final topic on this episode of Download it's the 10th anniversary of the App Store which is kind of hard to believe so 11 years ago the iPhone came out and 10 years ago the App Store opened and this was so we went a year where there were no apps on the iPhone but then the App Store opened developers from the day that the iPhone was announced said we want to write software for the iPhone and it seemed like a good idea Apple put it together 10 years later uh the technology world is completely different Ten years ago, the App Store had 500 apps on it. Now it has 2 million. Uh, The App Store has customers in 155 countries. The smartphone is the most important computer for basically everyone, and apps are a huge part of that. So I wanted to ask our guests who have been observing technology for this whole time, uh, what, what, what comes to mind to you when you're thinking about how far the app store concept has taken us in the last decade because it really has been transformative ben what do you think well i i think that
3: you know we'll look back at this years to come and and it will be kind of one of those 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 moments, those watershed moments, where really everything changed for the industry, right? Not only did we bring you know a the most mass market consuming product in, in the history of computing in the smartphone easily into the hands of consumers, but we made it very easy for them to uh, to get to get software right. So the the line from origin from developer to consumer got even even smaller, and and the market grew significantly, right? So economically, I think that this has been uh, you know a, a transformative thing for the industry but it's 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 always fascinating to look back on because it seems like you know from day 1 it, it, I mean, it made a lot of sense, right? Why was getting software so difficult for such a long time? It just seems such a logical step that, you know, you could make it really easy to find something that you wanted from a software perspective and, and easily get it on your phone. So, I think there was there was a number of, of things that that led to this from a historical perspective. But, I mean, re- really, I think the story of just the economic growth opportunity that, that this has brought to platforms, and obviously now every you know platform has an, has an app store. But really, what it's done for you know Apple and the ecosystem, I think, is 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 one of the biggest stories that um, that that's that, that's gone on. And really, I think, like I said, the the economic side for developers just letting so many people. Um, you know, have businesses, have successful companies and kind of do the things that they love, you know, not working for a big company, but working for themselves and their vision to, to write software and, and how it's just enabled such, such a large economy is, is important. And I think it'd be in it'll be the, this, this is now the normal, right? This idea of, of, of just shortening the line from consumer to software and developer is the standard now right that'll move over into mixed reality and, and virtual reality and wherever we go from here it's it's now the baseline expectation so i mean i think it's it's honestly it's, it's transformed everything but but i look back and say it, it seems like it was entirely logical like it was just an idea waiting to happen you have to imagine that this was you know that apple didn't stumble into this that they knew from day one like their goal is to make it easy for people to find software now the size and scale scale of it, how big it got. I'm not sure anyone anyone could have uh, anticipated that. But I think that now that this is the, really the, the, the foundation for any platform is a good, rich app store, I think is is really the big kind of transformative historical view that uh, that everyone will look back on in history and, and point to as kind of that moment that solidified this run that we're on and, and now has created sort of a new, a new baseline of, of how platforms work.
1: To Ben's point about, you know, this was in Apple's mind from the beginning of about finding software. I wonder if some of it was, um, which because I, I don't know if that was necessarily true, but I do think that, you know, you were coming from a PC-dominated world and an internet-dominated world. And, you know, when it came to software, there was much more done for Windows than there was for Mac. And this was, you know, Apple's opportunity to change that. And, and they... I have obviously been very successful with that uh, in in creating now a platform where uh, from a developer perspective Apple was first of mine um, and and I think that is is for me what is exciting in and, and the the next step of not just about the software but you know now you have um, if you like the what was best of the internet, which is I can get to whatever I want to, but in a much simpler way, much more targeted, much more personal, uh, and that opened up the opportunity, not just for software to uh, be distributed differently, but for, for services to be thought about in, in a different way. And, you know, I reminded people this, this week that, you know, the there's an app for that. It really is true. Um, and there's a lot of stuff out there that you can easily do without. But, you know, we lost our gecko a few years ago in the house and I found an app that mimic the cricket sound better than the live crickets that I had in the house that <laughs> I was able to get my gecko out of hiding. Um, and I did it with an iPhone. You know, it's silly stuff like that. But then there's empowering, you know, apps, uh, not just from a knowledge perspective, but, you know, thinking about um, people with uh, either visual impairments or hearing impairments and, and how much more accessible the world is now through apps that are available on uh, on iOS, which, you know, going back to my previous point about Windows and their ecosystem, um, you know, now creates an issue for our platform. Ben said not every platform has a, has a store. Absolutely, that's true. And the ones that they have in, not all stores are created equal. Um, and I think that's, that's not going to go away what people are expecting from an application store. And even within the Apple ecosystem, not all stores are equal. If you're thinking about the quality of apps, for uh, Apple TV, for instance, you know, Apple thought that they could replicate the same uh, success story that they had on iPhone on Apple TV, and that didn't work. Um, you know, consumer didn't necessarily want to have the same apps or the TV be about apps. Um, so, you know, this great success doesn't necessarily replicate and uh, figuring out where it works and where it doesn't, I think is going to be important going forward, thinking about AR and VR, too.
2: I think it's interesting too how how much Apple got right on day one. I remember at the time people talking about how the the apps were it was very clearly based on the iTunes infrastructure, right? It, 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 even to the point of when you uploaded an app, there were like data fields that were very clearly left over from the the music roots of that of that platform. But from the front end perspective, from what the customer saw the app store was very similar for a very long time. They had things like top charts and categories and all that really fleshed out on day one. And it really hasn't been until last year with iOS 11 and the big editorial push that we saw, big sweeping changes to how it was organized. You know, they tried things here and there. My favorite is an iOS 7. They tried the near me tab, like apps important to you in your location. And if you're like me, I live sort of in like a mid-sized city in the middle of the country. All there was was like my local newspaper apps. Like there wasn't anything really spectacular there. It very quickly went away. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious as to what everyone thinks about this editorial push with iOS 11 and and how big of an impact that's made to the, the consumer side of the app store,
0: if any. I think it's a big deal. I think uh, having content... Is always important, Um, and the you're you're so right about uh, the app store being iTunes and apps are songs. (laughs) Like that's totally what it was, and it was Apple was in this incredibly fortunate position to have that infrastructure there, and then on top of that to have their own control freak tendencies of like, this is not a platform we're going to open up to everyone and let people download software. And did they know that if they stuck those two things together, they were going to revolutionize how people think of software and interact with it and actually buy it? I don't know. Probably somebody thought that, but uh, you never really know. But it turned out to be that perfect combination. So that got us through almost a decade. Uh, But it was always a little bit like, apps aren't songs. You know, that's the truth of it. Apps aren't songs. And um, the editorial approach of trying to say i mean it's still marketing material but to have to put effort into explaining sort of like here's why you might want this app or did you know there are other apps i'm a little surprised on one level that it took them that long to get to that point it was a huge investment to do that apple's track record with making editorial content is incredibly poor but I, i am on on that other level surprised that it took them so long because the in many ways the app store kind of succeeded uh, despite the fact that Apple was kind of just sticking it in an iTunes template and... Uh, you know, th- that shows you how powerful the idea was that Apple didn't do a lot of heavy marketing of apps beyond just like putting some images in various places and occasionally curating some lists. And yet it still was hugely successful. So I'm happy to see this next generation of of uh, App Store content that's actually got words and, uh, you know, a, a team of editors who are trying to find good stuff, but it obviously didn't need it to succeed. I think too, you know, it's
3: encouraging in, in this this move from Apple is. I, I feel like they're doing more than anyone to to really sort of help you narrow down, you know, your interests and the and the kind of content or or, or apps that you that you might be interested in, um, because there is so many apps out there. You know, years ago, right, we talked about oh, there's so many apps. How many apps that you do you need? It's app fatigue. It's hard to find what you want. But the reality is, they're they're putting into the core part of of the App Store experience just ways to one discover new things, which I think is really interesting and important part of kind of the app store experience right people are always kind of looking for something that either you know brings them joy helps them laugh you know has you know helps their mental health as you see a lot of the the meditation apps that are they're being successful so apple's putting themselves into an interesting spot to also help influence some of those things by how they, they promote, um, how they promote those as well. So it could be, you know, a social trend. It could be in this case, which I think was interesting, the, the meditative apps, it could be just great stories. So I I think that they're, they're trying to develop those daily behaviors. I think Apple news sort of falls into this as well, right? Just some of those things where they're trying to create, curation of quality things that help you kind of make your life better, use your iPhone better, et cetera. And so I think that's, that's positive because I think this is them taking steps again toward just helping you figure out what you want and and really delivering on that, on that rich experience. And you just don't really see that, right? You can, you kind of see and feel app overload and difficulty of search, difficulty to narrow down what app to get in the Android ecosystem. It's a little bit more, more messy. Uh, Whereas Apple's trying to help hone that in And even though there's so many out there, I think those curated experiences are things that consumers will value because it helps them get the best app day one um, and not have to go through trying out five or six different apps, you know, et cetera. So I I think that's a positive thing. And this is to to your point, Jason, why it took them so long. I mean, this is why I think so many people that we all know and love that used to be in journalism joined Apple are starting to to see the fruit of that labor.
1: I think the, you know, the analogy that you, uh, Stephen, brought up on, on iTunes and and you kind of um, confirmed and agreed with i think that was genius in a way because it, they knew itunes was working at the time you know now is a different story but you know back then they knew that was a model that worked for people uh and they were embarking on this new world that they didn't know and sure as hell the users didn't know right so finding something that was familiar And replicating that as a first step, I think, was genius because it was that familiarity that got people to say, I get this, you know, I search in the same way. Of course, then you find out very quickly that it's not quite the same because you can't put i remember at the beginning one of the things i was like okay because i downloaded you know the tube map in london i don't want the one about moscow because i don't live there huh. you know and so <laughs> you seem to be a
0: fan of public transportation in
1: cities <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know but that's how music worked you know you had a genre, a genre or a singer and they were suggesting this so you know but as a first step that was in my opinion what actually made it successful
0: Yeah, it was, I think, a combination of Apple just using the assets that it it had and uh, and yet they and, and, and some instinct but they also happened on I think some of it is definitely chance that they happened on the right approach and uh, and it, it, you know with with side effects like app pricing being really low pushed down because if an app is a song songs are 99 cents, guess what now software is 99 cents and that's that's led to all sorts of issues about the sustainability right. of the market and all that but it also led to the success of the App Store and the success of the iPhone and the success of the whole iOS platform and so you know apple might make that same trade today but it definitely has been something that they've had to had to grapple with since then but it was part of the, the success. Well, 10 years on, it's gone in a flash, uh, like like so many things, but uh, I'm sure there are more shocking turns of events to come. Uh, before we go, I want to do our traditional fuzzy puppy update where we tell you about something happy. And in this case, I'm going to say a round of applause to the police at the New York Port Authority who rescued a kitten from a hot SUV in a Kennedy Airport employee parking lot. The cops say the kitten was without food and water for about three days. People noticed that the kitten was in the car they actually wrote notes on the car like and used like tape from the from like where they uh they tape stuff onto your uh onto your luggage (laughs) it's like airline tape uh to say uh, your cat is in this car but the owner was was on an international trip so the cops got there they popped open the car's locks problem solved but no because this kitten was terrified and hiding under one of the far back suv seat frames Uh, but they did manage finally somehow to coax the kitten out the cat is fine it's in an animal shelter Uh, the owner says that it was all a misunderstanding there's a whole story there but it's being investigated but uh, i am uh, i am pretty confident that that kitten will find a good home after three days locked in a car which is no fun so Good job to Port Authority Police and hooray for kittens. And that brings us to the end of download. Carolina, where can people find the stuff that you do?
1: They can find me on Twitter at caro underscore Milanese. They can find me on Tech Pinions every Wednesday with my column and on the Tech Pinion pos- podcast more often than not on a Friday.
0: And Ben, where can people find the stuff that you do? Similarly, Much the same. Uh, I would imagine Twitter is yeah, Twitter is the
3: the central hub of my distribution, if you will. So at Ben Beharin uh, on Twitter and uh, and obviously at Tech Pinions, um, most of my content is for uh, is for subscribers. I'd say like ninety five percent of what I write weekly is, is for subscribers. But every now and then a, a public post will go out. But regardless, Twitter is how I let everybody know what I'm thinking and and where my stuff is uh, is pub.
0: And people should check out techpinions.com. Um that yeah, the newsletter's great, the the articles are really good. Uh, it's a it's definitely a site that's worth uh, considering signing up for and getting all that good information and commentary from people like Ben and Carolina. Um but that's it. We're, we're done until next week when we will be back. We're not turning this into a fortnightly podcast or something like that. We'll be <laughs> back next week. Stephen and I are both back uh, at home, at least for a little while. Uh, it is summer, but I'm, I'm not planning on going too far away. Uh, Stephen, thanks for putting the show together this week, as always. You bet. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. I have been your host, Jason Snell, and until next week, we will keep watching the headlines so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody.